Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Solari Gentile. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now today, I'm joined on the show by Solari Gentile, and in her new novel, The Woman in the Library, Solari is crafting a new novel about a best-selling Australian crime author, Hannah Tigone who is crafting a new novel about neophyte Australian crime writer Winifred Kincaid, who just might be crafting a novel about yet another crime writer, except that she's gotten herself stuck in a real-life mystery. Solari Gentile is an incredible writer of far-reaching meta, meta-narratives, and this is no exception. Join me as we discover Solari Gentile's The Woman in the Library. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Solari. It's long time no chat. It's been, you know, it's pretty cool to, to catch up again. I deliberately mm. waited until you'd had a chance to, to chat to the boys over on Death of the Reader. Yeah. Mm. And I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah, I did them quite early, I think. Yeah, because I, I remember... Um, I remember, I can't remember if I requested or if Emily had sent out a copy and then she was in, in now back and forth. She said, oh, Death of the Reader are doing this as well. Is that going to be a problem? And I'm like, well, I mean, in theory, not, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold off a little bit. Until they, until they do their special treatment. Mm. They have a really, really unusual, but I think a really wonderful structure to the way they do their, their book reviews with one of them reading and one of them not <laughs> they've they've invited me to jump in on one occasion and it's kind of fun it's kind of fun yeah. and so what i actually did because you know i was waiting um i forced myself to do a read along with them and it's it's a really fun way to experience the book it is it is especially when you know they have such bizarre theories <laughs> of how the book is going to finish and you know a couple of times i thought oh yeah that could have happened. <laughs> that could have, could have gone that way. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's really fun. They have a this. They're really fun to talk to. Awesome. Well, look, and, and I bring that up also to acknowledge that having, having listened to that conversation, I don't particularly feel the need to revisit it. I would love our chat to be very much more about the way you look at writing and, and the way, mm-hmm. I guess, um, because we, we, we never spoke over crossing the lines. This is very much focused on the woman in the library, but the way that sort of element of your your sort of library of, um, of, yeah. our, of our output um, looks at writing. So, yeah, I, I do nod to the mystery, but I don't go into it. In the, so I'm not going to... Yeah, I'm only obli- I'm only obliquely going to probably get you to pull anything apart that that it concerns the mystery. Yeah, and having a little bit of fun with things um, as as I want to do. Shall we? Shall we start off? Shall we? Yeah, let's do go. Some let's go before questions? we. Yes. All right, here we go. We love a good metafiction, Solari. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. 
And always a pleasure to be joined by you. And look, you're just bringing us so many incredible treats. It's it's never boring. There's always something new. And to honour that, I want to give the woman in the library a different type of treatment, a different type of synopsis to what I've read. Is that okay with you? Yep, go ahead. All right. The woman in the library, we have best-selling Australian crime author Solari Gentile is crafting a new novel about best-selling Australian crime author Hannah Tagone, who is crafting a new novel about neophyte Australian crime writer Winifred Kincaid, who just might be crafting uh, a novel about yet another crime, except that she's gotten herself stuck in a real-life mystery And, dear listener, sorting out this web will be the work and pleasure of some 250 pages of your time and reading. All right, that was was my first attempt, Solari. I do have one more. It's shorter. Will you indulge me? Yeah, please. All right. My other take is, in The Woman in the Library, Solari Gentile finally explores what would happen if one of the Scooby-Doo gang was a murderer. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) Um. That's that's me. That was my take. That was little things that popped into my head. Some of them are informed. Like that, There's a throwback there to our very first conversation some eight years ago. Well, you first coined the phrase Scooby Gang, and I hope you noticed that at the end of The Moon in the Library, there's a nod to you and a reference to Scooby Gang. I, I did notice that. I wouldn't have presumed. <laughs> No, no, it was you. <laughs> Listeners can't see this, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a freezing cold house, and yet I'm still, uh, you know, fanning myself because I'm flushed. <laughs> I, I am interested though because this is a book that really is all in the framing. Um, I think depending on how you start reading, depending on what you start paying attention to when you begin the woman in the library, it's going to influence everything that happens after. So. I'm putting it to you, Solari. How do you introduce a book? Like, what's your elevator pitch to people? Um, I, I, I say, and and look. To be honest, this elevator pitch emerged well after the book was written. After I had lots of time to think about it, uh, so it's not something that was uh, inherent or impulsive. But I usually describe it as a mystery within a novel set into the pages of a correspondence. Mm. I love it. I love it. Uh, That nods, of course, to the different types of writing that we see and the different ways of crafting and creating. So as we get started, we've both mentioned mystery here, Solari, and I think it's really important to let the listeners know uh, that we're not going to delve super deep into that. I want to acknowledge the death of the reader, um, the, the gents from Death of the Reader, Felix and Ben, Flex and Herds. They have already chatted to you and there is a terrific edition of their show, Death of the Reader, dealing with the woman in the library. I would definitely encourage people to check it out because you can read along and solve the mystery together with Flex and Herds. Um, and I don't feel the need to revisit that territory. I'm really interested in the way you explore the craft of writing. That, that's all right with you if we... Yep. yep. Uh, it would be a delight. All right. Now... The woman, both the woman in the library and 2017's Crossing the Lines, these are examples in your work and more broadly of metafiction. And I'm just going to call that writing that knows it's being written. Yes. You're getting quite a uh, reputation for it. It's to the point where I'm almost okay that Roland Sinclair seems to be on an extended sabbatical. Um, (laughs) Metafiction tends, I find, to ask more of its readers. It, It engages them. It tells them you're reading and we want you to pay attention. It's harder to sink then into a suspension of disbelief when we're constantly kind of jolted across these levels of reality. 
Does this kind of writing require a lot more trust between you as the writer and your reader? Or do you think we're just all really hungry for a bit of deconstructed reality at the moment? Uh, Look, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I mean, the unusual thing with uh, the writer-reader relationship is though, you know, the the writer is in the reader's mind for several hours and it is quite an intimate relationship. I don't actually know who's on the other end. Um, so it's, it's, I have to write towards a, an unknown reader. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's very hard to rely on that relationship of trust uh, because I don't know who's on the other end. I don't know if they know, know my writing. I don't know whether they're busy, whether they're distracted, etc. So it, it can't be wholly that it's got to be uh, it's got to be a little bit of both. And I think um, writing as a profession is is in equal parts intriguing and magnificent and absurd. Um, there, you know, to the very idea that there is actually a job where people sit down and make things up for their lives mm. seems absurd. And uh, and so I think there is a natural um, curiosity as to how that works and why that works and the kind of people that are able to spend their lives making things up and living in other worlds and detaching themselves from reality. I'm also intrigued by that. Uh, I'm intrigued about what it is about me that makes me want to do this and able to do this, um, what makes me compelled to do this. Um, And so in a way writing metafiction is an exploration for myself. Uh, But I'm as clueless as the reader about what it is. And so I hope that in exploring it, I'm not this, I'm taking the reader on a journey with me rather than having them follow me. Mm. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that there is a job where people get to just make up stories and that's what they do. It surprises me a little bit more that there is a whole cottage industry that builds off that where people get to make up stories about people making up stories, whether it be <laughs> literary criticism, literary journalism. But the fact of making up stories doesn't surprise me. I mean, I know yourself, you have been a lawyer in a former life. That's right. I mean, there's yep. a lot. If, if, if you know, There's I, a lot of making up stories in law too. Yes. I was going to say, if I, if I, I don't, didn't want to impugn lawyers to that extent, but definitely law is about saying, see this story, I need you to look at it in this way, which is a yep. big part of most oh, no, no, this, I, I don't think you're impugning lawyers to say that it's a storytelling profession. Mm. Um, one of the things that the law teaches you is that a set of facts fits into several different stories. Mm. Um, and, and that's a really handy thing for a fiction writer to know, but that's basically the, the trade of the lawyer, they take the set of facts and they fit it into a story that benefits their client. Mm. Um, so it, it is about crafting, uh, crafting stories um, in that sense. And, you know, I think, um, I think what you said about the cottage industry is really interesting uh, because, you know, the product is fictional. The pro- product does not exist. Mm. The, uh, that is at the centre of this cottage industry. It's not like, you know, producing widgets or um, or a car or something like that. It doesn't actually exist, this thing that you're selling. And so the entire um, industry that's built around writing has this strange metafictional element mm. to it. Before we move on, Solari, 
I just I had a horrible computer crash last time I recorded. Do you mind if I actually I, I should have done this at the beginning. I'm going to hit record on Zoom as well because it's it's not the sure. best, but it is some sort of backup. Yeah, sure, no problems. I okay. will recording in progress. Yeah. Um, fingers crossed it doesn't happen again. But now I'm going to in three, two, one, face on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've already said I don't want to delve too much into the mystery of the woman in the library, but I was curious. Um, we begin, we see Hannah's novel about Freddie in its draft form. She is yes. writing the story of Winifred Kincaid, and it's all there from establishment to denouement. And I know um, you've discussed this with Flex and Herds and that it was it was all written as a whole, uh, the inclusion of the emails as well, which is an element outside of Freddie's world. Uh, to establish this idea of your writing process, the writing process, I wondered, would you be happy to submit Hannah's manuscript? Could it exist as a standalone for publication in Hannah's fictional world? Um, yeah, I think it could. I, this, I, I think if I had written the whole book without um, the Leo element um, and the framing device, it would have been a book. It would have been a stock standard mystery. And I hope it would have been a good stock standard mystery, but it would have been a stock standard mystery. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't have said much about the writing process, but you still would have had, except for what, Freddie herself says as she's writing. Mm. So you would have got her input into that. You just wouldn't have got the layers above her. Um, you would have still got a, a closed set mystery. Um, you would have still got all the suspense and drama that's attached to that. You would not have got, uh, I suppose, some of the insights into culture that you see in the conversations with uh, Hannah and Leo. Uh, but I think the mystery could have stood alone as a mystery in and of itself. Um, but that was not just, that was not what I wanted to do. I, I've written mysteries before. I love writing mysteries and I love writing your traditional golden age uh, type of mystery. Uh, but I wanted to do something more with this particular novel. I wanted to say something else and I wanted to explore something else. Mm. I, I wanted to tease that apart because... That is a really obvious um, separation in the book between Hannah's world where she has a correspondent, uh, Leo, who is making notes on her text, and Freddie's world. Freddie is writing a book, but it's it's more of an abstract idea. But Hannah's book exists for us. And the awareness of that separation made me aware of another separation. It might not be anything, um, but how conscious, how comfortable, how much did you want people to read you into the novel? Because, of course, above the frame of Hannah writing Freddie is Solari writing Hannah. Look, and I think um, the reason I didn't, you never hear directly from Hannah through the whole novel. You only see what she writes in response to the letters from Leo. So even though you're invited into a correspondence and an exchange between two writers, you only actually see the letters from one mm. and then the, uh, the, there's the novel that's written in response from the other. And the reason I did it that way is I think that if you truly want to know a writer, you find them in their work. I'm more honest in my work than I am in, in real life. Mm. And I'm pretty honest in real life. Uh, but in my work, all of a sudden, I don't have um, 
I, I don't have the inhibitions of of judgment and social uh, taboos and so on because I can just put those thoughts into into characters and so on. And you can always see what uh, a writer values most by the things that her, this her or his characters will stand up and fight for the the things that are pulled apart in that story, the things that are examined. And I think in some ways we. Uh, approach our novels with a kind of honesty that we're not even aware of. Mm. Uh, and that's why writers will often be surprised when a, a critic will pull something out of their novel and they'll think, oh, I didn't intend to write that, but yes, now that you've mentioned it, that is what I've written. Um, and, I, and I think the, the, the process of writing allows us to, to channel all those things because writing isn't about this intellectual game of finding words and vocabulary. It's also about putting a heart and meaning behind those words. And sometimes heart and meaning uh, come from a place that we're not aware of at the time. Um, and, and so I think I've always thought that the truest expression of me is in my novels. Mm. Um, so if people want to find me there, uh, they'll also find some villains there. I'm not the villains. But if they truly want to know me, they'll, they'll re- they can read me and I'll be there. And, um, and then, you know, hopefully... Um, hopefully they, they won't be terrified of me. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a terrific, there is a terrific story um, that, that goes into a little bit uh, about your villain that I'm going to again remind people, go and check out the conversation Solari had with Felix and Ben. We're not going to go into it here, but I was really interested because, of course, yes, Hannah is both conspicuous but revealed through her absence in the book. And I didn't want to get all curious incident of the dog in the night on you, but it, I, I also felt that, we saw a lot in the spaces that you weren't occupying, Solari. You, you were um, you were conspicuous by your absence, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, do you mean what Hannah refused to write? Um, I think also just what we what we understood. So, in coming to understand um, Freddie. Yeah. And her craft. And we really almost see people at different stages of the writing process. Freddie at that uh, very um, uh, incipient, very um, yep. early stage. Hannah at this much more, um, you know, fully fleshed draft stage. It's a draft that almost it pretty much stands alone. Yep. And then, of course, Solari, you, you exist in behind the published manuscript and so we're understanding a little bit about you as perhaps the um, the nth stage of that process. The puppet master. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah look at this. I, I, this I, I see what you mean, and yes, I agree. I think it's um, it's 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 a it's like an onion. <laughs> it's yeah. Layers, uh, and each one reveals. Mm. So in in uh, Freddie's story, you can see. Um, a lot of what I believe about loyalty, what I believe about um, courage and race and uh, and redemption. In the next level, in Hannah's story, you can uh, you can possibly see what I believe about friendship mm. and collegiality, uh, but also about um, uh, ownership in terms of uh, this artistic ownership. Um, and and where the line is drawn between uh, advice and control, 
Um, and then, and hopefully that should give you an insight into me, uh, the kind of person who wants to create Frankenstein's monster and put them all together. <laughs> I was also interested, and, and perhaps this is a more direct way of asking the question, because there's a really fascinating part of the woman in the library. Um, you do, because of the framing of the different narratives, you lose a sense of time. Freddie's story is happening in a very compressed time frame as they are trying to find a killer. Hannah's story plays out over the better part of sort of it's 12 to 18 months. And in that time... The pandemic begins. Yeah. Hannah is in the bush in bushfire, and then she is in pandemic, and that really got me thinking. If we're extending out that time, perhaps for Solari, and yet you, this is the this is the metafictional Solari, who is in part the person I am talking to. Um, perhaps this also uh, happened to her. And there's a great correspondence that Leo has about whether this should be a pandemic novel. When did the woman in the library become a pandemic novel for you? Well, when the pandemic started. So it didn't, it, it didn't, it yeah, didn't so, consciously begin as a pandemic novel? No, 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 because I started writing it in the bushfires. Is that a fair characterization uh, that it's a pandemic yeah, novel? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of a funny sort of pandemic novel in that it, it, it both is and isn't. Mm. Um, so I started writing this novel in in December of 2019. Mm. Um, and, of course, Batlow was completely smashed by the bushfires. So I was writing this novel in the refugee house mm. as we were evacuated when it looked like we were on fire. Um, and so the bushfire crept in. Uh, to the novel naturally, um, and and that's I mean that's part of my process. It's I just open I open the gates between real life and imagined life and let free transgress in between, mm. um, and and then of course the pandemic followed very close on the heels of the fires. So by March we were fully into pandemic lockdown. Um, so uh, you know even if you're writing a novel that takes place over two weeks. You don't write it in two weeks. <laughs> you write it in an extended period. So Unless you're Jack Kerouac. Hannah, yeah. <laughs> so so Hannah, um, Hannah, of course, was writing from the bushfire straight into the pandemic. And actually the novel was finished before that first lockdown was over. Mm. Uh, or not with, with the, yeah, it was, it was heavily into that sort of period. So I think that this at the end of the novel we're still talking about COVID and pandemic because um, uh, that's the one thing that stops Hannah from going to the US, which mm. creates the impetus for this correspondence with Leo in order to to write her novel properly. But it also keeps him away from Australia mm. uh, until he manages to break, break through in that respect. Do you think there's an interesting tension there that the world, the um, IRL, to get... Um, to get all millennial on you, um, it was breaking through. The bushfires into the pandemic were forcing themselves into the narrative while you were writing a narrative about a character who was writing a narrative about a city they'd never visited and trying to centre this narrative um, in real life without that personal knowledge. Yeah, look, I think, you know, the, the wonderful thing about this type of fiction is I think to do it successfully, you have to basically open the doors mm. and you must you must be open to letting real life influence what goes on. Yeah. You can't, I, I, and I suppose, you know, part of the thing is that I'm a pantser, I don't plot. 
And so it's it's much easier for me to let things just walk into the novel um, because there's no preordained plot that they're interfering with. Mm. And then the novel just moves with it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, if you recall or if you're aware, at the at the time, in about March, April, there was this huge argument about how writers were going to deal with the pandemic. And there were a lot of people who said, readers don't want to read about the pandemic. We're just going to ignore it. Mm. Uh, we don't want to write about it. Readers don't want to read about it. That's it. We're not going to, this, you know, all our books are going to be set in 2019 from now on. <laughs> but of course, you know, that's that's kind of mad. Uh, a mad thing to do. And on top of that, if you, you know, there were some writers who decided that they would write it uh, with the pandemic as recent past. But at the time, we didn't know when that would be or how that would look. So that was going to be very, very difficult. And then there was another school of thought that said, no, um, it's your obligation as writers to write about the pandemic. Um, You can't ignore it. It's like writing a book set in 1942 and ignoring the war. It just breaks all, um, it breaks the contract with the reader. Mm. And so I was dealing with all of that. Um, so I, I, I don't know that I so much made it a pandemic, no, this novel. I made it a pandemic novel on one level and left mm. it in the other. So I put both sides of the argument in. Um, Hannah decides to set her novel in 2019 where she started it. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but clearly there's uh, Hannah and Leo um, exist in in a pandemic world, and and not just the pandemic. It's Black Lives Matter, all the crazy politics that were going on in the world at the time, the aftermath of the bushfires, and then we're hit with floods. Yeah. So all of that just seeped into the novel. And that was why I was really interested in calling it a pandemic novel and and seeing what your reaction was because I was in, in, actively involved in these conversations on the show as we were, you know, we're in a pandemic. How do we deal with timeframes? How do we deal with, you know, the very real and changing shape of our world? And I guess, you know, you, you make the analogy of um, writing in writing in the 40s or writing about the 40s. And I guess the, the difference would be if you were writing a novel about 1942 in 1942, the only thing you, you really don't know is the ending how does it all end? Um, and reflecting back, your your sense of the story is, I, I feel at least subconsciously going to be influenced by, well, it does end and and we have certain views because of that. Um, yeah. And I mean, we're getting yeah, close, no, we're getting no, close no, to I'm Roland listening. Sinclair here, aren't we? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. I agree. I agree entirely. It's one thing writing a book in hindsight mm. And it's another thing, writing from the eye of the storm. But, you know, I I never saw it as uh, tedious or a burden. I saw it as an opportunity. I, and I think more and more writers are coming to see it that way. We don't have to write the pandemic simply by putting everybody in masks and mm. uh, writing our scenes in lockdown. Um, there, there are, you know, we're creative people. There's other ways to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think more and more we'll see writers wrangling with this question and coming up with wonderful, creative, um, left field ways mm. of dealing with the pandemic in novels. Um, it doesn't have to just be putting down um, the kind of um, fear and drudgery that we we dealt with. Um, so I think 
um, yeah, it, it was it was it was interesting. I'm kind of glad. I'm ne- I can never be glad the pandemic happened, uh, but I think it did. Having to deal with it uh, was certainly a, a step for me as a writer, and it was a step of of confidence as a writer. I think um, of of thinking, no, I can do this. This is not. You know, I don't need to send this book in 2019. I can deal. I can deal with this. Yeah. Um, and and something will come to me. Um, mm. So I didn't actually sit down and think, how am I going to deal with the pandemic? Something just came to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it just worked that way. And I think you are you are one of the one of the brave people who are saying, well, we don't. We, it, it's it hasn't passed. We don't know. We don't have an established idea of what this will mean to the world or art. And you say, well, I'm, I, I will put it out there, and that will be. You are actually contributing to how we will interpret it in in whatever mm. way people read it. In the woman in the library, we gotta let's. You know, we can't end the pandemic, but let's pop a cork in the pandemic part of this conversation because there's so much more in the woman in the library. <laughs> now, I mentioned in the intro. I mentioned in the intro. I can't let go of the way you love to throw four characters together. Um, and Scooby-Doo-esque, you've got the mix right. All that's missing was the dog in the woman in the library is for the magic number. Yeah, it seems to be for me. Um, I, I've always written four, hmm. even when I was writing the hero trilogy, which is my Greek mythic thing, it was four. And I don't, I, I never sit down and think I've got to have four characters. It just seems to be, the way the characters gather as they mm. walk into my story. Um, I, I, of course, I didn't have a dog, um, but the reason I don't have a dog is because it's crime fiction and I can't hurt a dog. Mm. <laughs> so um, I, 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 I leave them out of my stories because I want them to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, so, yeah, it, 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 the four characters seem to give me enough room for people to bounce off each other, for there to be more than one hero. Uh, for there to be different types of heroism. Um, I, I'm very, I've never been fond of stories where every good thing was embodied in one person because that's not the way the world works. Mm. Uh, but I, I do believe that people can bring out the best and worst in each other. Mm. Um, and I think that's why I always deal with uh, large casts. I think we need we need to find a narrative numerologist or if that doesn't exist now that I have just created it, because, you know, I, I think if we really, if we really break it down, one is, yeah, you've, you've got an archetype two, you've got a, a romance three, you've got a love triangle. And then I feel as soon as you get to five or six, you're starting to have maybe a leader and a team. So four might yeah. be that magic number where yes. you actually have a proper dynamic. Yeah, yeah, a democracy. <laughs> Which is, it, it, it's an even number, so it's a democracy. I was one of three girls, and so our democracy was stymied by the fact that there was only three of us. So mm. all you needed to do was to get one of your sisters to vote with you, and and you had control. Mm. <laughs> Whereas that's a little bit more difficult to do if you have four, <laughs> and uh, and it this it's a more you know, even-handed argument. Okay. Um, You've so, just brought prime so. numbers in now too. And <laughs> I, I, I know someone's going to have something to say about that. Yeah, surely out there somewhere, tell me, tell me, what am I doing? <laughs> so from from the four, we, we need to look at these characters. And I, I don't need to look at them so much as look at how you look at them. As Hannah creates Freddy's world, 
she explores Freddy trying to create, create her own fictional world. We've established that. You give yep. us insight into drawing a character. And this is, this is very early on. This is all um, sort of establishing scenes. Hannah shows us a young woman with full sleeve tattoos, a psych student perhaps. She gives us some insights. She explores a little bit more. Freddy ostensibly is doing this in her own head, but she just sort of runs with the sobriquet Freud girl. And it's a name that follows Marigold through the novel. And it struck me that these sketches and our growing knowledge of the characters, they also mirror a personal relationship fraught with its prejudices and its assumptions as we flesh out that knowledge of a person. Is that how you come to know the characters? Do they be- become friends? Are they, you know, are, uh, do they begin in the same way a friendship begins? Exactly. They begin in the same way. So I know very little about a character when I first meet them. And then over time, they reveal more and more and more to me. Um, and that's how I write them because, you know, um, when I think, I think I, I avoid doing character sketches and profiles and so on before I start because it feels to me that, um, you know, uh, throwing a character onto the page and knowing everything about them doesn't give the reader time to catch up. So if I start the story where I barely know the character and they reveal themselves to me in the same way that they're revealing themselves to the reader, then I'm in the same place as the reader all the way through. And I suppose that's why I can pants a crime novel yeah. uh, without, without plotting because I am putting myself in the exact same place in terms of um, knowledge of the story as the reader. And I, and I also, I, I find that more natural and also uh, a way to love people more or to actually engage with the characters more. Uh, so, you know, a friendship that's built slowly over years mm. or even a friendship that's built quickly but is revealed slowly over years um, is something that, that there's very strong bonds built in that way. Mm. Whereas if you just sort of slap a character onto the page and tell the reader everything about them in the one hit, then there's no, there's no sense of discovery. There's no sense of um, revelation. There's no sense of trust that's built in that process. I feel like there's an interesting choice to be made here. And I'm in all of my questions, I am consciously paralleling what's happening in the page and, processes that we go through again, IRL, in in real life, um, there's a choice to be made because, of course, Freud Girl, uh, and I'm picking picking on Marigold, but um, Freddie actually does this to each of the core group. Um, Freud Girl could be read as as flattering or reductive, um, and we could see that as, well, she's, you know, she's stereotyping, she's limiting, she's making judgments, or we could see this as, well, this is an invitation this is a, a point of interest that will be expanded on as opposed to just completely ignoring the person. Um, and that's that's really quite wonderful. We can choose whether we take our initial impressions and lock them in stone, set them aside and never alter them or allow ourselves to get to know the person better. Absolutely. And, you know, look, it's, it's just a shorthand and it's what we do in real life. We see people and we shorthand them. Um, and you cannot, you cannot regard everything you see and feel in its entirety in a non-reductive fashion. It's the, the amount of stimulus that the human brain is, um, exposed to, you need to reduce Mm. so that you can understand the world. Uh, but reducing doesn't necessarily mean, um, pushing away 
the whole of a person or excluding that. It just means that you are are reducing so that you have a shorthand for that moment, uh, so that you have a point of connection and a point of entry. So Freud girl was the way that she noted uh, Marigold, uh, just as uh, what did she call wit? Heroic chin. Heroic chin. <laughs> yeah, and handsome man. Chin. And handsome man. All all completely reductive, but they're all in the privacy of her mind. What would Freud call herself? Do you think this is, of course, a bone uh, of contention in the what book? What would Freud call herself? I think. Um, I think. She, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Maybe um, writing girl or trying to write or distracted girl or, yep. <laughs> or, or Australian. You know, she was very aware that she was Australian in Boston. Mm. Uh, so she might might think of herself as Australian girl. Uh, if that was whether she, yeah, whether she was going to this um, talk about herself. But it's, yeah, it's, it's not a, I, I hadn't actually even, I hadn't until this moment actually thought of those titles as reductive. But they are, but they are they they are reductive for a purpose, so that she can grasp an entry point yeah. by which she can build a character. And similarly, when uh, a writer builds a story, they have uh, a character whose purpose in the plot is mm. a. So maybe their purpose in the plot is to um, bring bad news. Mm. So. In their mind, they may be the bringer of bad news. <laughs> and uh, it's not necessarily that that will be all their character is, but that is their purpose in the plot. So that's kind of how it works. And then they build and they become whole people from there. And it's a choice. I mean, it, you know, the idea of reductive suggests that it's it's the only thing. But we go all yeah. Lewis Carroll here and we could appreciate that a very small door may actually open into a much larger room should we choose to walk through it. There's also, I guess, a question yes. of, of what we are allowed to know. And you pose this really strange conundrum through the emails of the enigmatic Leo. Um, Leo chides Hannah for not explicit we tried Hannah for a lot of things um but one that was really interesting um is Hannah's not explicitly or to Leo's eye not explicitly coding race into her characters and this all comes from him coming to suspect that perhaps Kane might be black um and look it's I'm not going to go into it. People need to read the book. It's an outrageously racist rant from Leo, but at its heart, it also reflects the very real racist rants we see online every time an established character is adapted in, I think the, the choice term at the moment is a colorblind way. So that might be a, a black actress playing Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Yep. It's a mermaid. Yep. Look, <laughs> look I, was, I was always really aware of this, and there are two sides to that argument. As much as Leo's rant does seem racist there, there are some points that he makes that are valid and that's what's so um, intriguing so, <laughs> so i think of it in terms of you know uh, hamilton the musical which has mm. colorblind casting and i love hamilton with a passion i know the songs inside out um absolutely and I, i've never seen it on the stage but i've got the cds and it plays on loop in my car um, and I was really engaged with the history. But the reality is most of those men or a great number of those men were slave owners. Mm. And they mm. were and, and sometimes I wonder whether the colorblind casting lets people off the hook. 
as to the reality of who this person was. So the reality of who George Washington was is that he actually was a slave owner. Um, And in his time, he did nothing for emancipation. Uh, He might have been good in other areas, but on that he was nowhere. Uh, He also, you know, led a lot of battles that absolutely slaughtered um, native populations in America. All of that is sort of given a kind of a very gentle, woke, uh, this appropriate uh, light by the fact that he's played by a black man in this, in Hamilton. So whilst the whole idea of colorblind casting is wonderful, there are some there are some drawbacks to it. Um, And that was the discussion that I wanted to have with Leo and Hannah. Now, Hannah is choosing not to, not to be explicit about race because she doesn't. And I, I never do either. I don't, I don't mention race uh, simply because I don't like to cast characters for my readers. I give you eye color, hair color, height, if it's important, Mm. but generally, Otherwise, you know, you can imagine them as handsome or ugly or, you know, with a big nose or with a beard, mm. whatever you want. I don't care. Uh, and I think Hannah was coming from the same place. But what Leo is is talking about is how your narrative arc is affected mm. uh, by the colour of your skin in America. Um, and I think Hannah's, Hannah's pushback on that is that's what she wants people to think about. That's what she wants people to, you know, if if they're if they're sitting there wondering whether Hannah this cane is black or white, then maybe they should be wondering why they're wondering, mm. Uh, mm. why that's important, why why a story is unbelievable if he's a white man, or why a story is unbelievable if he's a black man, um, and that's where she was coming from. So it was a it was an interesting conversation that I wanted to have. Writers don't have all the answers. I don't have mm. the answer for this one. Uh, I just think it's something that should be discussed and so, something that should be thought about. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the one of the great benefits or the the great privileges of being a writer is that you can have conversations with the reader in the privacy of their own mind. Mm. So people then aren't getting into positions; they're not feeling judged. They can actually be honest about what they think in the privacy of their own mind. And so then you've had the opportunity to have that conversation uh, in a way that you can't have it in any other place yeah. and in any other space. And I've always believed that polemics or lecturing or yelling at people, it's no effect whatsoever. Mm. But if you can maybe suggest something to them in the privacy of their own mind, if you can get them to examine what they're thinking and why, maybe you can persuade them. Yeah. Central to Leo's thesis is like, if, if this detail is so, then the story has to happen a certain way. Um, yeah. And like, spoiler alert, a lot of what I'm building up to here is, you know, kind of how narrative theory might actually play in our lives. And Leo is saying, well, if, if Kane is a certain type of character, then the story will or won't work. I want to come to how that operates on a plot level because there are moments peppered through the book where Winnie and the other members of the group, they muse on the nature of their meeting. To them, it feels like they were thrown together. It intensifies their friendship beyond what we might normally expect. They, they refer to the fact that, you know, maybe they were kind of meant to be this little friendship group. And this feeling of, of meant to be-ness, it has an aura of narrative inevitability. 
We also see, though, that the characters voice a mistrust of coincidences. You know, or, you know, coincidences don't work when there's a dead body around. <laughs> Stories work in certain ways, but they don't have to work in certain ways. Metafiction is definitely the place to be exploring this. How do you as a writer like to deal with plot points that might feel a little too convenient? Well, um, yeah, no, look, that's usually the death knell of a, a crime fiction novel where we where you resort to coincidence um, and convenience in order to to propel a story forward. But and and you know to to that end, even in that novel, uh, the meeting wasn't a coincidence. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but it felt this, but they didn't know that. But also, I mean, coincidences do happen in real life, and I wanted to. Um, look at the idea of friendships formed in trauma. So at the time, bear in mind that I was writing this, I was in a refugee house in uh, in Tumut while Batlow was burning. And in that house were two other families because, you know, there weren't enough houses to accommodate us in Tumut. So we all just squashed in. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I had known these people before, but that process of being together while everything was burning, created a bond that was over and above. Mm. Um, and so I was I was looking at that idea and play, playing with that idea of how many friendships are formed because you happen to be in the same place when something terrible happens mm. or, or something alarming happens. And it's a little bit like that everybody knows where they were when JFK was shot. Not that I do, I wasn't born, but... <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that phrase. <laughs> uh, there, so uh, I suppose everybody knew where they were when nine eleven happened. That mm. sort of thing. Um, I think that that kind of feeling of crisis, that heightened anxiety, does actually lend itself to trusting whoever's nearest to you. Mm. And and that's you know what it was based on. I also remember when I was at university. Your best friends initially were the people in, I lived in college, were the people in the rooms next to you. <laughs> and its proximity is a very, very strong bonder. Yep. Um, so I was playing with all those ideas of, you know, why people become friends, how people become friends. And I've, I've had a lot of people talk about this, um, about, you know, is it possible for people to, for a friendship to ignite so quickly? Um, I've ha I've had friendships that have ignited like that, yeah. um, you know, just and and they have lasted for the rest. You know, I would say the rest of my life, but I'm not dead yet. They have lasted to to date. Uh, so I I don't know that friendship is something that you know needs long exposure. It mm. just needs exposure of quality. Yeah. It needs a good nickname at the beginning as well. I love that. I love that we've we've kind of obliquely referred to the rules of mystery writing, and you've you've kind of let us know that if something does seem like it maybe breaks one of the rules in a Solari Gentile novel, maybe look a little bit closer. Um, names. I have to ask about names because I was reading. I went too deep trying to work out the significance of names on an unfurling plot. There's the obvious and slightly hilarious revelation that Cain used to be Abel. And that was, forget about it. That was, that was a cherry that I didn't even need on the top. I was like, for example, I was looking at Hannah. Hannah's a palindrome, which I felt was fitting as she sat between you and Freddie. So it could be read the same front to back, but also to 
it's a hybrid tiger lion. I thought there's also something going on there, but then I was wondering, could it actually be pronounced uh, Tigany, as in Antigone? Um, and there's a, a level of, I guess, sacrificial um, element there. So I, I could go on. Were names just you having fun, or was there was there something deeper? Uh, sometimes, certainly Kane Mabel was deeper. Uh, I didn't actually pick up on the Hannah Palindrome thing. Uh, initially, um, Hannah was called Frankie. Uh, and uh, it was she was Franca Tagoni, and Franca Tagoni was my little sister's best friend in high school. That's all. Just <laughs> <laughs> picked it up. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, this, uh, because I have a preference I, I love female names that are shortened to male names. Okay. So Winifred, Freddie, Edna, Ed. Um, it, it has been my theme uh, through most of my books. But I thought I couldn't do it for two names in the one book, so I couldn't have Frank of Frankie and mm. Winifred, Freddie. That would just be weird. <laughs> and so she Fra- became Fra- Hannah. Frankie and uh, Freddie would have sounded like a gangster novel. Yeah, yeah, it would have been silly. So there's a lot of things that people, and, and, you know, that's part of the reason why we use the the reductive sort of monikers in the beginning because it takes a long time to work out the names of a mm. character uh, because not only does that name have to fit the character, but it has to fit with all the other characters. Mm. You can't have two characters with names that start with the same letter or readers will get confused or things that sound wrong together. So... Finding names is actually a really awkward, awkward thing, uh, and they're often changed. As anyone who's tried to name a baby knows. <laughs> no, much easier to name a baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> much easier to name a baby. So you're not, with your um, characters, you're not going, look, it can't be Caroline. I knew a Caroline once. She was bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that actually, because okay. it's a, it, and it's the same thing with writing. You oh shit! Just sorry, super think. quick. Sorry, any Carolines that I know who are listening to this, I'm not talking about you. Like, <laughs> I don't think I know many Carolines, but definitely need to say well, that. That was just off the cuff. Well, with Caroline and Wit, I just simply looked at the names of Brahmins, mm. so they were both, you know, uh, this Boston upper society. So I just had a look mm. <laughs> and and found their names. Uh, Marigold, because she was, I knew she had these full sleeve tattoos. She was heavily tattooed and had the piercings and, and looked very street. I thought, you know, I, I kind of thought that would be lovely juxtaposition if she had this really girly, fragile name. And, uh, and that sort of suddenly became part of her character because she's actually a very fragile character. Mm. Um, but even though she has this out, outward armour of sort of uh, that street look, um, so it's, it's funny, you have to be, you know, sometimes the names can actually change the character as well. Um, Cain and Abel, I knew I wanted to call him Cain. I don't know why I wanted to call him Cain. I kind of like the name Cain, but I just, I wanted to be a modern name. Uh, I wanted to be American name. Mm. Um, I was doing a, I was doing a book, uh, at this, a Zoom interview with a, with a book group in America who were, this, uh, the, the, the group was um, quite diverse. But one of the readers said, oh, I knew Kane had to be black because Kane is a black American name. Cool. And I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that when I named him. I had no idea. Yeah, see, <laughs> for me, Kane code's super white. It feels, it feels like a white name. Like, 
Oh, okay, yeah. Well, no, she was saying that Kane's a black man's name. And, uh, and I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> and this, luckily, the writer had no clue. Um, I th- there's, and then Abel, I think, is a white man's name. So interestingly, you've got this Abel and Cain thing. But, you know, but again, it's never, none of these things are set in stone. <laughs> you know, you can, you can, uh, you can have a white man named Terrell if you want. Mm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, but uh, it's, it's just, um, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. Mrs. Weinbaum and all the other, Joe, all those, there's a lot of characters to name in a novel. Mm. A lot of characters to name in a novel. It's traumatic. So what you're saying, Solari, is that at a point about a third, maybe half of the way through the novel, when I was absolutely convinced I could figure out who the killer was by decoding all the names, is like, good luck to you, Andrew. It must be fun to be in your head sometimes. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Especially because, you know, Andrew, I had no idea who'd done it mm. at that stage. <laughs> so it would have been amazing if you'd found it in the code uh, because I hadn't decided. There was a point where I was actually convinced, not not to um, not to the level of Ben, we're, just, we're, we're having a really meta conversation with the death of the reader interview here, not to the point of Ben where Ben, I mean, Ben's theory was, sorry, Herd's theory was just that Caroline wasn't even dead and may never have potentially existed. But (laughs) my, my thought was, and I feel in a way I was vindicated that we were just looking in the wrong place. And even though traditionally in a mystery, um, the mystery is announced very early on in the book. I thought there is something else going on here. And, I I wondered that there was a level of misdirection. Um, and yeah. I'm going to use this as a very thin segue to ask that whether maybe it was all a love story all along because, of course, that is one of the Leo's um, very interesting literary theories that every story is a love story. We don't get that. That doesn't really expand very much in the novel. Where did that come from? Oh, this is just... Right. Well, no. Look, Leo is right. Every every book is about relationships. Yeah. Well, I I think he's right. Every book is about relationships. Fair. You cannot write a book without a relationship at its center. Um, I think you know it doesn't actually have to be a love story. It, uh, this unless you count sort of like sibling love or parental love. But there's always some relationship at at peril or in question or developing within. Mm. Any kind of book, whether it's, you know, uh, a literary novel, whether it's crime fiction, whether it's a thriller, there's always a relationship of some sort at mm. play. Um, and, I, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that I'd always uh, <laughs> acquired. It was the information I'd acquired from writing the Roland Sinclair series because, as you know, originally when I started writing him, um, I, I gave, I, I let him be in love with a woman who wouldn't have him. So I wouldn't have to write a love story. I thought that'll solve it. He's in love with someone who won't have him. End of story. We can go on. But as I wrote more and more books, readers became so obsessed with the relationship between Roland and Edna mm. <laughs> that they were reading the book for that. And I realized that, um, you know, a crime's fine, <laughs> but it's the relationships that readers are there for. And sometimes the relationship is not even between characters, but between characters and readers. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the thing, one of the bits of information that I've gathered in my, um, 
12 or so years of writing uh, that don't try and escape the idea that uh, it's all about relationships. It is. <laughs> just, you just have to identify who the relationship is between. Um, <laughs> yes. we've, we've built up to this point. I will have to let you go at some point, Solari, but um, to, to end... I want to acknowledge that one of the joys of a book like The Woman in the Library is the reader can indulge in a world where meta-narratives exist. Hannah is literally crafting an overarching narrative that makes sense of events. And so we presume, are you? Narrative theory suggests that we make sense of our world through stories and that in turn, stories help us shape our world. Absolutely. You nod to this with your establishing scene where a scream is supposed to bring help but then you also suggest that the reading room rules no longer apply. <laughs> Tantalising. Um, how much do you rely on the rules of stories in the world? <laughs> I think, oh, I, I, look, I, I rely, comp- well, I, I have immersed myself mm. completely in that whole um, storytelling movement and the the equal passage between the real world and the imaginary world in my own life. Um, and that's just who I am. Uh, I mean, writers have different levels of insanity. Um, so maybe I'm on the extreme end. Um, but I think, I think as much as, you know, this, what, what, what you were saying about um, we, we use the real life to create stories, which in turn, influences real life Mm. there is that i can see that symbiotic relationship and even you know on a meta level we are the narrators of our own lives Mm. um you know what we choose to see what we choose to care about what we what we choose to concentrate on the paths we choose to go on it's like we're writing our own novel Mm. Um, and and I think that's where it all fits in beautifully so in some ways writing a novel is like a practice for living um, it's that we, 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 we practice on other characters, um, the same sort of, um, decisions and pathways we choose for ourselves. And, you know, I, I wrote an article in the, in the pandemic, uh, which was basically along the lines that, you know, thrillers and suspense and crime novels prepare us for dealing with crisis. It's a practice so when you're when you're reading a novel, you're thinking about, oh, would I do that? You know, what if I heard a scream? What would I do? How would oh no, they're doing the wrong thing? I would do this. Um, and then you follow the uh, the hero or the heroine through, and you 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 feel every punch with them, and you you um, this uh, go on every investigation with them. And in a way, that's kind of like practice. <laughs> for disaster, um, and and I, and I suppose there's I I kind of believe that our lives ourselves are a story we're telling ourselves, and we choose how we do that. What a terrific way to end our conversation, Solari. Thank you so much. I'm just going to let everybody know that I am chatting with Solari Gentile. We are discussing her new novel, The Woman in the Library. Uh, It's so great. We we took a very different look at the novel. Um, It is also an incredible mystery that has more than a few twists and turns. Solari, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on the show. I'm delighted to be here, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Solari Gentile. Solari's new book is The Woman in the Library and it's out now from Ultimo Press. 
Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2OCR. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, it means a new great conversation and bonuses every single week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors here on Final Draft. See you later. Happy reading.